You're listening to the Common Descent Podcast. Hello, Will. Hello, David. Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Common Descent Podcast, episode 124. This is a podcast about paleontology, evolution, and Earth history, and today, our main topic is Snowball Earth. Snowball Earth, if you are unfamiliar, is a hypothesis that proposes the existence of an extreme ice age. An ice age so extreme, in fact, that it covered almost all, or depending on what model you're looking at, all of the planet Earth in ice. Snowball Earth is one of those where, like, typically when you hear the the title for a hypothesis, uh, there's a lot of times where it's not, it, it if you take the title at face value, it could be misleading. Right. You know, towards, all right, well, that's not actually what it means. Right, like the Big Bang. Yeah, like the Big Bang's it's not, not really a bang. Not really a Big Bang. It's the, ti- the kitschy title that got placed with it. Right. Uh, Snowball Earth sounds like one of those titles. Yeah. Like. It sounds like it should not actually be that. Yep. Yeah. But kind of maybe actually. (laughs) Yep. And it is not just a hypothesis of something that is theoretically possible, but a hypothesis to explain certain evidence in the past that seems to support the idea that this actually happened. So in this episode, we're going to talk about what the Snowball Earth hypothesis is, what evidence seems to support it, what are the many, many things we don't know yet about it to solidify our understanding, And how it fits into our understanding of the history of our planet. We're going to talk about it because it's a neat topic. We're going to talk about it because it's catchy and memorable, and so it gets discussed a lot. Yep. And we're going to talk about it because, like all of our episode topics, our listeners asked us to. (laughs) They told us to. This topic was requested by Ivana, Alejo, Orlando, and Melissa. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, as always, to our requesters. Like every episode, we're going to have a main discussion. Before that, we're going to have a news section. But first, some announcements. Yep. This podcast is brought to you by our patrons on Patreon. The donations by our patrons allow us to do the whole podcast. Everything. (laughs) And patrons get special goodies like bonus news discussions and director's notes, the ability to ask us questions to answer on the podcast, and their names shouted out in gratitude here on the podcast for all of you to hear. This episode, we would like to thank and welcome to the Patreon, Mark and Alex. Thanks, Mark and Alex. Thanks for joining us. Hey, if you like what we do and you'd like to support our various endeavors to bring science to the masses, consider supporting us on Patreon. You get all sorts of cool goodies. And we appreciate every bit of that support. We sure do. Hey, another way you can support us is by going to our Zazzle store and buying merch. We have Common Descent-themed merchandise, shirts, Mugs, towels, things like that. And right now is a great time to go to the store because we've recently uh, made more merch options available Yep. in celebration of the other big thing that's going on, which is spooky. Yeah, we're in October, which means we are doing our Spookulative Evolution special where we take classic movie and mythology and storybook monsters and say, what would happen if we evolved them in real life? And this year, we're doing plant monsters with our friend Allie. We sure are. By the time this episode, episode 124, is released, 
We will have already released the first two episodes of this year's Spooky coming out Saturdays in October, which means there will be two left to go. So if you haven't already, check out Spooky, and we've got Spooky merch on the store now, so you can wear Spooky on a shirt or on a sticker or whatever you want. (laughs) Also, this is a side note, but the day that we're recording this is National Coming Out Day. Oh. And also National Indigenous Peoples Day. True, true. So I hope everybody is celebrating by throwing a party with a rainbow-colored Christopher Columbus-shaped pinata. (laughs) In any case... Let's move on to the news. Every episode, we like to start off by sharing some news from the world of paleontology, evolution, etc. to keep us all up to date and sort of get the paleontology evolution discussion juices flowing. Will, start us off with some news. My first bit of news is about a tardigrade fossil. Ooh. Yeah, a tardigrade that was preserved in some Dominican amber, a third of its kind. That's pretty cool. Third of its name. (laughs) First of its name. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Fair. (laughs) This research is by Mark Mapallo et al. in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B Biological Sciences. And the article is by Michelle Starr in Science Alert. So tardigrades, uh, water bears, as some of us probably are familiar with. Yeah. Itty bitty microscopic invertebrates. uh, They're found all over the place, uh, both in aquatic and terrestrial environments. These are the ones that look like microscopic plush things that can reportedly survive basically anything. Yeah, they look like little living gummy bears. Yeah. Uh, One made a cameo appearance in Ant-Man. Yep, yep, yep. The second Ant-Man? No, it was the first Ant-Man, I think. Uh, The second Ant-Man. Second Ant-Man. Yeah, because that's where they they make a, a comment about it in that one. That's true. You pass them on your way to the quantum realm. Right. Uh, Glad we got that sorted out. (laughs) (laughs) So they are, they're everywhere. They've been around for a very long time, but their fossil record is not great. As you could imagine. They are very, very tiny. They are very soft bodied. They don't create a lot of mineralized body parts that will fossilize well. Molecular clock estimates put that they likely diverged from the pan arthropods about the Cambrian. So like early on, and they've been tardigrades since then but we don't have a good fossil record during all that time there are two definite groups identified from the fossil record uh, uh, crown groups both from the cretaceous both north american one at 90 million and one at 72 million years old this research describes the third fossil tardigrade this one from the miocene and preserved in dominican amber it is only about 16 million years old so by far the youngest and is a new genus and species. That's not at all surprising. Yep. When you find the third ever of a thing, there's a good chance you no one's seen it before. This new tardigrade is Paradoryphoribius chronocaribius, and it is very tiny, as you would expect. It is half a millimeter long. So what you're saying <laughs> is that hundreds of tardigrades could fit in the space it takes to type the name of this tardigrade. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> This has been identified to the modern superfamily, Isohypsid bioidea. It is the first fossil from that group found. First fossil tardigrade from the Cenozoic. Mm-hmm. And as mentioned earlier, the third fossil to be actually named Yeah, of tardigrades. So it's the first of a lot of things. Yes. I would imagine. Which means, as usual, it's going to bolster our understanding of tardigrade evolutionary history by 50 (laughs) percent by a ton (laughs) 
Now, a bit of interesting things uh, in dealing with tardigrades, it's too small to examine under a dissecting microscope. You have to examine it using different means. They used confocal microscopy. Basically, in this method, they were able to excite the tardigrade with a laser and the chitinous uh, cuticle, the outer section of the tardigrade, fluoresces once it's excited which gives them a detailed image of this tardigrade, both inside and out. Ah, positively glowing. Yes. <laughs> which also makes it the best imaged tardigrade fossil to date. <laughs> <laughs> they said they were able to clearly see a lot of physical features, uh, the little claws that make them water bears. Nice. The mouth, or foregut, is it sometimes called. And they said on the outside, it looked like a tardigrade. Like a modern one, like you'd expect. It was actually internal structures that caused them to erect a new genus. The foregut was unique to this tardigrade and unique among its modern relatives. And it was different enough to make a new genus and ergo new species as well. <laughs> they said that if you only looked at the outside, you wouldn't have grouped it differently. It was only with the insight, with this uh, confocal microscopy seeing the inside that let them see these unique uh, features. And so this will very likely help fill in some of the info about tardigrade evolutionary history, but also it really does point to amber being a good source and that we very likely could have missed them in previous ambers that have been described, that we've described one fossil in it, but there could be many tardigrades waiting to be found <laughs> if we just look harder for them. Which is exciting because it means we don't necessarily have to go out and find more amber. No. You can just go to the, the museum and search through all that amber. Just start looking for tardigrades. Can't be that hard. Man, how often do you get to identify a new species in the fossil record by its internal structures? Right? That's pretty cool. It's a crazy concept that we're even able to do that. Yeah. Well, and especially for an animal that is... Half so, a millimeter. Yeah, half a millimeter long. <laughs> That's ridiculous. Well, hey, I'm going to scale us up. My first bit of news is about giant ground sloths. But since it's October, these are giant ground sloths with a taste for flesh. <laughs> this is research by Julia Tejada et al. in Scientific Reports. We will link in the blog post. Hey, every episode there's a blog post on our blog with links to more stuff. To an article in Science News by Carolyn Gramling, sloths today live in trees. They are tree sloths. But in the past, there was a whole host of ancient ground sloths, some of which were giant ground sloths. We did a whole episode about this. Episode 24. Yeah. And they're herbivores, right? Yeah, as a sloth should be. Typically, we consider them to be because partially all modern sloths are plant eaters and... All the fossil ground sloths have the kind of jaws and teeth we expect to see from plant eaters. It all adds up. I mean, there have been gut contents in sloths. Like, all our evidence says, yes, sloths eat plants. Well, in this study, the researchers did an analysis of nitrogen isotopes in sloth remains to upend this. <laughs> they looked at two sloths from the late Pleistocene. Darwin's ground sloth, Mylodon darwinii, from South America, and the Shasta ground sloth, Nuthrotheriops shastensis, which I believe is uh, North American, and compared the isotopes that indicate their diets with modern animals, including modern sloths and anteaters and other things, to double-check their results. They analyzed 
amino acids in fossilized sloth hair. Specifically, so amino acids are the building blocks of protein. They looked at glutamate, where nitrogen isotopes will change along with food sources and environment. And another amino acid named phenylalanine, where nitrogen is not affected by diet. So together, they can sort of rule out environmental effects and get a sense of what do these isotope changes tell us about the diet of these animals. Neat. The Shasta ground sloth, same sort of nitrogen signatures we see in modern sloths and plant eaters. It was an eater of plants. Darwin's ground sloth, which is a giant ground sloth. This is a one or two ton animal uh, huge, this is a rhino-sized creature, showed signatures that we expect to come from animal-based material in its diet, <laughs> indicating that this giant ground sloth was an omnivore. Cool. Which is, as far as I know, the first time that's ever been documented in ground sloths. Now, some important notes. Darwin's giant ground sloth does not have the body, nor the teeth, nor the jaws for being a predator. <laughs> this thing was probably not, like, hunting, <laughs> chasing camels across the South American landscape. They're ambush hunters. <laughs> right, that's right. With the big, just the, they, they would get under the, in their burrows, like sand striker Yes, yep. <laughs> Trapdoor ground sloths. <laughs> so they probably were scavenging. Yeah. Uh, which... We've talked about this before on the podcast. Every now and then there will be a bit of news about an herbivorous animal that woo is eating meat, which is rarely surprising because that happens quite a bit. Yep. This seems to indicate that it might have been a pretty common thing for at least this species of sloth. This also, the authors point out, lines up with some other research that has found that this type of ground sloth, Mylodon, their jaws... Uh, as far as what you want for eating plants, seem to be less efficient than a lot of other herbivores. So maybe they weren't as good at eating plants because they were doing more things. Yeah, they, they were maybe leaning more on that omnivory. Yeah. Uh, which would make sense that they wouldn't be quite as specialized. This is kind of a big deal because of how important sloths are in ecosystems. Sloths are a major component of ecosystems, especially in South America, for some 30 million years. Episode 24, episode 74, we talk <laughs> a lot about sloths. Which means that if at least some of them were eating different things than we thought, that changes our understanding of the ecology yep. and how nutrients are moving. Specifically, the authors point out, this might help explain why South America in the later Cenozoic has so few carnivorous large mammals. That oh, there yeah. really aren't a lot of large carnivorous mammals on the continent, which now seems maybe a little less surprising if ground sloths were versatile enough to be taking in meat. Mm -hmm. That they were part of the secondary consumer guild of these ecosystems. Which is really an interesting concept to picture. Right? Like, that's a very unique uh, environment for it's just for that big of an animal to be playing that big of a role on the meat eater side. Right? And like you said, it's not uh, completely bizarre because herbivores eat meat all the time. Yes. They uh, do it to supplement their diets. Mm -hmm. They do it if, if 
times are harsh or, or all sorts of reasons. There's also lots of times where it's just the easiest way to get protein is protein. Yeah. And meat has more of that than plants do. Like, it's just sometimes the easier option. If given the choice between nuts and a bit of raw meat sitting there, <laughs> a lot of them will go for the meat because it is a higher source of that nutrition. Yeah. So, yeah, like deers eating baby birds and it happens. rabbits and stuff. There was that tortoise going around mm-hmm. in the news recently. So now, uh, presumably, there will be a rush to do tests like this for other sloths. Please. How many of them were secretly meat eaters? (laughs) Well, because I know it was, I heard it suggested for, uh, is it Megatherium? I think so. The big ones. The The big big ones ones with the big claws. With the really big notable claws. And uh, there was a, I think, purely hypothesized. I don't think there was any actual nutritional evidence or anything directly like that. But that just, the claws were so prominent and the musculature for the claws seem to suggest that they could be used in, in, very effectively in violent acts. Uh, that it was suggested, like, well, maybe they were using it for attack and not just defense and yeah. gathering food. Uh, I don't know that there was any, it went any further than that. But if we test their hair and it turns out, that's <laughs> <laughs> that would actually be some support for an idea. Yeah. The real question is, what does this mean for Therizinosaurs? Yes. Time, time will tell. <laughs> Well, speaking of animals that definitely ate meat, this next news is about shark evolution. This is research looking at uh, two groups of sharks, the mackerel and ground sharks, and trying to partially answer why are their diversities today so vastly different, not just compared to each other, but to how they were in the past. This is research by Mohamed Bazi in Current Biology. In the article is a press release in phys.org from the University of New England. So, mackerel sharks, the lamniforms, and your ground sharks, the carcaraniforms, today are very different in their diversity. There's only about 15 species of mackerel shark, but there's almost 300 ground sharks, 290 species. But in the past, we actually see the opposite, where the lamniforms, the mackerels, were much more diverse than the ground sharks. And so this is research trying to figure out why did it change? What were the potential causes to change it? And what they're looking at is diet preference by looking at tooth morphology. So we've mentioned this before in past when sharks have come up. Shark teeth are pretty much what you're referring to if you refer to shark fossils. There are exceptions, but that's the only bony part of a shark. And, And they leave behind tons of them. And they shed them throughout their life. So... You have a large supply and it fossilizes well. The rest of the skeleton does not do that. But also, shark tooth morphology, the shape of the shark tooth, is very indicative of what that shark is doing with the teeth and what it's eating. Uh, They have very specialized teeth for their diets. So you can get a very good idea of what kind of meal plan the shark is heading for based on their teeth. This research looked at teeth dating from 83 million years ago to today. All right. So late Cretaceous all the way up to now. Exactly. In total, the study included 3,837 fossil and extant teeth. Wow. A bunch. That's You can do that with shark teeth. Right. Uh, this is a geometric morphometrics analysis. So it's digitizing the shape information of the tooth and mathematically comparing them to one another. And with this, they can look at... Not only the diversity of shark teeth throughout the last 80 million years, you know, plus a little bit, but also the diet 
preferences of the groups throughout that time. They also coupled this new research with previously published records of shark diets uh, attained from stomach contents. So this is they were using that info with those shark's teeth to make a shark tooth roadmap for the past. What they found was that in the Cretaceous, when the mackerel sharks were the more diverse group, many of them had very specialized diets, it seems, for eating very likely marine reptiles. Huh. So teeth designed for going after that larger specialized prey. At the end of the Cretaceous, when we lose all the major marine reptile groups, we also see a huge dip in the mackerel sharks. Many of those specialized sharks go extinct along with their specialized prey source. Fascinating. Those mackerel sharks that had more generalized diets, along with all the ground sharks that had more generalized diets, survived and made it past the Cretaceous. And in fact, it seems the ground sharks did well after that when we saw a diversification of bony fish following that extinction event, and that they actually were bolstered after the fact. Uh, this along with things like the spread of coral reefs shortly after, like 56 million years ago is what they dated. They also cited that we, a, there could have been a similar event about 5 million years ago. Uh, this is often what is cited as the potential cause for megalodons, mm -hmm. uh, Otutus megalodon, the biggest shark that ever lived, which is thought to be a specialist in whale eating. And there is a potential extinction event among whales then, uh, though I know we've had news debating the exact timing yep. of those two things, uh, but that this is a could be another example, since that is also a mackerel shark, of specialized diet causing an extinction event. Yeah, if you specialize in the biggest things around, when a mass extinction happens, you're going to have trouble. Exactly. So it looks like the current standing with mackerel sharks being not very diverse at all could very likely be due to their tendency to specialize compared to the ground sharks, which tend to be a bit more generalistic. Very interesting. You know, it's funny. We talk about marine reptiles so often. I talk about marine reptiles so often. We have done episodes on the three big famous groups of Mesozoic marine reptiles, and I never really put a lot of thought into who was eating all of the marine reptiles. Yeah, we tend to think of them as the top of the food chain. Yeah, they're the apex. They're the, 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 they, not much is feeding on them. But there was a bunch of them that were not big. Yeah. You know, and a bunch of sharks that were big. <laughs> it, well, it's easy to forget when talking about Mesozoic oceans, because they had all these cool mosasaurs and ichthyosaurs and plesiosaurs and other things, that there were also still lots of sharks and other fish. Yeah, that there have basically always been sharks. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, it's... it's it, Easy to be taken by surprise going, yeah, Mosasaurs had to watch out for sharks. Yeah. Because of course they did. They lived in the ocean on <laughs> Earth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah, Jaws would have been just as scary for Mosasaurs. Yeah. Well, they, they would have avoided the beaches too. Yeah, because it's one of those where like, even if the big Mosasaur wasn't afraid, baby Mosasaurs sure would be. Right. Which is another thing that I, I always like reminding people is no animal is without predators. Yes. Because even if you're the biggest thing around, you have to get there. Yep. You have to grow up. Yeah, well, like, uh, one of my favorite fun facts to share when it comes to orcas is that the name killer whale isn't just because these are, like, cool, awesome. It's because they kill whales. Yep. They are specialist <laughs> filter-feeding whale hunters. They hunt not always blue whale size, but, like, big whale, gray yeah. whale-sized whales. <laughs> 
So if we lose the whales, orcas might be in trouble like the yeah. mammals. Yeah. Well, I've got one more bit of news, and in keeping with the spooky season, this one is mostly about plants. Hey. Specifically, mangrove ecosystems where they don't belong. I think they belong everywhere. <laughs> well, then you're going <laughs> to like this. This is research by Octavio Alberto Oropesa et al. in the journal PNAS, and we will link to a press release on phys.org via the University of California, San Diego. Mangroves are a group of trees and shrubs that live in coastal regions. They tend to form the basis of mangrove forests, which you will often see in, like, lagoon, coastal lagoons and areas like that. This study examines an unusual mangrove forest in the Yucatan Peninsula, which is by itself among the rainforests. This mangrove forest exists on the banks of the freshwater San Pedro Martir River, about 170 kilometers from the nearest coastline. Which is really weird because they're specialists for brackish water. Yes. Like, that's one of the the famous things with them is that they have either leaves or stems that excrete extra salt. For salt water. They live on the coast. Like, if you lick a mangrove leaf, it's salty because they (laughs) sweat. (laughs) This mangrove forest is nowhere near the ocean. Weird. The authors set out to figure out why, and their operating hypothesis was that this used to be a coastal forest ecosystem before sea levels dropped. Oh. And left it stranded. That makes sense. They looked at a bunch of different sources of evidence to try to show this. Spoiler alert, they, they, that's what they show. It's <laughs> super cool. First, they did a genomic study. They looked at the red mangroves, the particular type of mangrove common in this forest, and compared their genetic material to other known mangrove genomes and found that their closest relatives are the ones living in the Gulf of Mexico. Huh. And exploring the genetic differences between these stranded mangroves, this inland mangroves, and their closest relatives allowed them to estimate when they diverged, and they came up with an estimate of about 100,000 years ago. Cool. This is interesting because... Over the past few million years, our planet has cycled between glacial periods and interglacial periods, times where ice advances and sea levels drop, and interglacials where ice retreats and sea levels rise. The last interglacial happened about 130 to 115,000 years ago, roughly lining up with the estimated date of divergence. They also looked at the other plant species in this inland mangrove forest and found around a hundred other species whose closest relatives are usually or sometimes only found on coastlines. Oh. Including other uh, species of ferns, palms, orchids, other mangroves. It seems this whole ecosystem is most closely related to coastal relatives. So this is like when a you know state park with a lake tries to make it feel like a beach getaway, <laughs> where they put like the beach umbrellas and the beach aesthetic, but it's a yeah. freshwater lake. Right. <laughs> the plants are trying to do that there. Yep. This is a, uh, we swear guys, this is an authentic mangrove forest <laughs> here on this river in the middle of the rainforest. <laughs> the researchers also looked at the geology of the area near this mangrove forest and found lots of sediments characteristic of marine environments, and they did sea level modeling to estimate 
could sea levels get here, feasibly during an interglacial period, and found that since the coastal plains in this region are so flat, small changes in sea level could create dramatic changes in the coastline. It only takes a little bit of vertical change to cover a lot more horizontal space, and their models predicted that a rise of about 9 meters could bring the coast to this river. Cool. Altogether, evidence that seems to indicate that the coast used to be there and then receded when the glacial uh, period, when glaciers advanced and took up a lot of the water available in the earth, leaving a patch of mangrove forest stranded inland where it remains to this day. That's awesome. And it makes complete sense. Like, yeah, as we often say with Allie, plants can't move. Yeah. They can't ch- they can't run away from changes. You can't take a bit of migration mm-hmm. to the ocean. So it's it's adapt or die. Guess we live in this rainforest now. Yeah. <laughs> the authors point out that this is a dramatic example of how climate change can reorganize ecosystems. They also cite numerous other examples of inland mangrove forests. All right. Uh, in Central America, in Southern Asia, I think they named at least one. Places where mangroves in other places are a farther from the coast than we would expect them to be. And they find themselves now wondering, and some of them have been suggested to be relics, mm-hmm. right? Stranded there from the past. This makes that seem a bit more plausible. I am pro, uh, since you ask, for transplanting these freshwater mangroves just all over the place. Just put them everywhere. Because this is the invasive species we want. Yes, because and and like it's one of those where no, that's a bad idea. Don't ever do that. But <laughs> <laughs> mangrove forests are are threatened in a lot of places. Like yep. they've lost, especially we like coastal areas too. Yeah. So we develop them. And whenever we develop areas, it just destroys the ecosystem around it. And mangroves are one of those. And so that was a big push when I worked down in Tampa at the Florida Aquarium. Uh, We would grow mangroves to be planted out and about. So, like, the idea of having freshwater mangroves makes me very happy. Yeah. Funny you should bring up the endangerment. Because the another thing that is noted in this study is that the area surrounding the rainforest surrounding this area was in the 1970s majorly destroyed because of human activity in the area. And the way the press release puts it, the banks of the San Pedro River were only spared because the bulldozers couldn't reach it. <laughs> so this forest has already been under threat of being destroyed. Had it been, we would not have known this super cool information. So the authors point this out as another important reason to preserve these areas because they hold information about the past and about how climate change affects our our ecosystems, which we will not have access to if we bulldoze all of them. Yeah, so... So don't do that. So so it, it is a bad idea. Yes. To to just pave over the forest. Yes. That's that's the take-home message <laughs> of this news. <laughs> All right. Noted. Ta- yeah, no. Keep it in mind. Yeah. Next time you're out there in the Amazon with your bulldozer, maybe don't. That is one of those where, like, how, how close we come and how much we have mm. lost of that kind of stuff is is very humbling at times. 
Yeah. Because, uh, yeah, that's one of those where that's a super crazy weird thing uh, that it would not take very much effort to do away with. No. That could be destroyed shockingly easily. Yep. Well, with that, on the note of climate change and extreme cool climate change, after the break, we're going to start our discussion about Snowball Earth. Stay tuned. Most of the Earth's history has been pretty warm. The Earth is a pretty warm planet on average. It is one of the things that makes us stand out from the other planets around us. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> warm times on Earth are sometimes referred to as greenhouse conditions. Times that are characterized partially by warm climates all around and not a lot of ice. This has been what the Earth has been like for most of its four and a half billion years. But a handful of times, climates have dropped and created what are called ice house conditions. Times where there is lots of ice. We're in one of these right now. Yeah, this is another one of those examples where the current standing does not represent the norm. Yes, this is a weird time. It is a glaciation. We are in the quaternary glaciation by some definitions, which means that uh, glaciation means there are glaciers forming. <laughs> The Earth today has glaciers all over, right, all over the world at high elevations, and there is ice at both poles all the time. Yeah, it's not freezing and thawing completely. Right. There's always some ice. All year round, year after year, there is ice all over Antarctica, episode 11, and there is ice all over the, the Arctic, episode 114. This state, with both poles frozen, has been around on Earth for about the last few million years. And in that time, there have been pulses of glacial advance and retreat. That's the case in previous ice house times as well, where you'll have advances of glaciers and then they will, ice sheets will expand and glaciers will, will descend down the mountains and the earth is generally icier and then times where they will retreat. It makes it sound like we're at war, like the the <laughs> land is at war with the glaciers and the glaciers advance and then you the, know? the foliage fights it back. These days, the ice is relatively retreated. But if you go back 20,000 years to the last glacial maximum, ice was expanded. Glaciers existed lower at, at lower elevations and Ice sheets, which is basically giant glaciers that spread all across the land, covered huge swaths of North America and Eurasia. But, generally speaking, glacial periods, glaciation on Earth, is restricted to high elevations and high latitudes, the poles. Incidentally, uh, the term Ice Age is not strictly defined. I've seen it used to refer to just the glacial periods within ice house conditions. So by that definition, the last ice age ended 10,000 years ago. But I've also seen ice age used to just refer to any ice house conditions. Yeah, if there is permanent ice. Right. If, if there is, if it is cold enough and you have, you know, ice caps at both sides and such. In which case, we've been in an ice age for at least like three million years. And we still are. <laughs> Snowball Earth is a hypothesized state of extreme glaciation. So extreme that ice and snow, glaciers, ice sheets, 
covered most or all of the planet. This is a hypothesis proposed to explain certain geological evidence that seems to support the idea that this has happened in the past at least three times. Which is so... Like, that's a Star Wars planet. (laughs) That's Hoth that you're describing. Sure is. And that's so bizarre to think that it very well could have happened here. There are three glaciations in the past that are thought to have potentially been snowball Earths. The Huronian, the Sturtian, and the Maranoan glaciation. All of these occurred during the Proterozoic Eon, which the Proterozoic Eon itself runs between about two and a half billion years ago and about 600-ish million years ago. This is before most of the stuff that paleontology talks about and that our podcast talks about. The Proterozoic ends with the Cambrian explosion. Yeah, like this is before most things that were fossilizing were fossilizing. Yes. So as crazy as this concept is, it wasn't happening in the midst right, of this isn't the like fossil record. Dinosaurs were walking around. <laughs> exactly. During these times, there is an assortment of unusual geologic features that the Snowball Earth hypothesis attempts to reconcile. So the Snowball Earth idea is a hypothesis, a proposed explanation. It is also a hypothesis with an extremely catchy title. Oh, yeah. And what the hypothesis proposes is really interesting and fascinating and exciting to talk about, which is to say that this idea has been much debated, much discussed, and it's also relatively young. Mm -hmm. The Snowball Earth Hypothesis, as we will discuss it in this episode, is only about 30 years old, and it's drawing conclusions about time periods that are very ancient. Yeah. And as we've discussed many times on the podcast, the farther back you go in time, the harder it is to find lasting evidence from those time periods. So there also isn't a lot of geologic evidence from these ancient times compared to more recent times that are more often studied and more better understood. So we're still learning quite a bit. There's a lot of discussion. There's a lot of open questions. And I say that to sort of put the idea up front A lot of what I say in this episode is going to come with caveats. There's a lot that is still being worked out about these time periods. I found a line in one of the papers I read uh, while doing research for this. This is a 2015 paper by Frank Corsetti where, uh, where it says, quote, Nothing related to Snowball Earth appears to be uncontroversial. (laughs) Well, yeah, this is a, a hypothesis that's our age. Uh, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's and so it's it's very young and like I can remember just when I was first getting into paleo stuff, hearing about it and it being presented very much as like, hey, listen, you'll hear of this thing. Mm-hmm. Pay it no mind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like that. Yeah, there are some people who think the earth was frozen. We're not going to talk about it because that's nonsense and then moved on past it. Uh, and then I'd hear it come back again with a bit more weight to it and then i'd hear it come back again with a little less weight to like yeah it is (laughs) there's a lot still to be discussed so let's start by going over what is snowball earth hypothesized to be the three time periods that i mentioned are widely accepted as glacial periods these are times where there was seemingly lots of glaciation we we all agree it was cold it was certainly cold the huronian glaciation has been dated to around two and a half 
billion years ago, right at the start of the Proterozoic. The Sturtian glaciation, recent date estimates, puts it at lasting roughly from about 720 million years ago to about 660. And the Marinoan glaciation, shortly after that, seems to have lasted from about 645 to 635 million years ago. The last two are very close together. Yeah, boom, boom. And are both glacial pulses within a longer cold period called the Cryogenian. Right. I forgot about the Cryogenian. Toward the end of the Proterozoic. <laughs> They're just pulses that went a little too much. Too, too extreme. Just, yeah, I appreciate the gusto, but bring it back. As I said, Snowball Earth is a hypothesis to explain evidence. The most famous of the evidence in question is geologic indicators of glacial activity, including rocks and stuff moved by glaciers and dropped in places they don't belong. These are called drop stones. Uh, Glacial erosion found at sea level, so associated with marine sediments, in the tropics. In episode 122, we talked about how you can use magnetic signatures in ancient rocks to determine how far or near you were to the poles or the equator, because the Earth's magnetic field changes as you move north or south. So if magnetic crystals are forming in a liquid on the equator, they'll be parallel to the surface. But if they're forming above the pole, they'll point straight up and down. At these time periods, there are glacial deposits associated with magnetic signatures indicating latitudes as low as under 10 degrees north or south of the equator. That's yeah, that's just on the equator. <laughs> and this isn't known from like one place. This, these have been found in Australia, Norway, Greenland, China. That's at least four continents in places that used to be in the tropics. Yeah, it's it's a situation where we're finding the the footprints for glaciers where they very well shouldn't be. No. Today, uh, I found one reference that uh, pointed out glaciers near the equator. You can get glaciers near the equator today, but typically at about 5,000 meters above sea level or higher. And the reference that I read, at least, said that even during the last glacial maximum, glaciers in this region are only thought to have gotten down to about 4,000 meters. (laughs) So to have them at sea level is pretty intense. It also suggests that if that far towards the equator is frozen, everything closer to the poles was probably also frozen. More frozen. And indeed, in at least the Sturtian and Marinoan glaciations, there are glacial deposits known all over the world. Wow. At this time period, we see glacial evidence on basically all continents. Once again, that's so extreme, it is a very alien concept. It's so strange. Yeah. And as time has gone on, as researchers have investigated this, other evidences have popped up, including iron deposits at these times in ocean rocks that should only have been forming where there was a lack of oxygen which some have suggested might be a result of oceans cut off from the atmosphere if they're covered in ice. Yeah. Other evidence includes deposits just above the glacial evidence, which just after the glacial period, that indicates a whole variety of very strange ocean conditions that things were weird after this. 
One really interesting bit of evidence that I saw cited came from a 2005 study that found that above the glacial deposit, so after the glaciation, there is a spike in iridium. Now, iridium is a space element. Yes. I mean, it doesn't just come from space. You get it on Earth, too. But iridium is often delivered to Earth via, you know, meteorites and stuff. Iridium is one of the strong pieces of evidence for the impact at the end Cretaceous extinction. But it also comes in just sort of all the time from space dust. Like Earth is constantly being sprinkled by dust from space. Oh, yeah. And so we're just gradually collecting space materials. The fact that there is a jump in iridium levels after the glacial deposits has led some to suggest that what we might be seeing there is that dust was being sprinkled down onto ice and snow for millions of years. And then when it melted, it dropped all of that dust and deposited it in one layer. Yep. That makes so much sense. (laughs) Yeah. So there's various lines of evidence that line up with this idea that there was an extreme glaciation. Some of this evidence has been known for quite a while. Famously, in 1964, a scientist, W. Brian Harland from the University of Cambridge, noticed, uh, in particular, low-latitude glaciers, right, near-the-equator glacial evidence, and suggested that there may have been a big ice age, a major ice age with widespread glaciers. But one of the real sticking points, especially in early discussions about this idea, was how did that happen? How is it even possible to get glaciers and and ice sheets extending that far? Well, around that same time in the 1960s, scientists were messing around with early climate models. We talked about climate models a lot in episode 113 with our friend Dr. Rachel Lupian. Climate models simulate the Earth system and mess with all the various factors that can influence climate. The atmosphere composition, ocean currents, etc., etc., to see how the climate changes in different conditions. Well, around that time, climate modelers, one of the factors that they were focusing on was what's called the ice albedo effect. Right. Albedo is a measure of the reflectivity of a type of landscape. The sun pours solar radiation, light and heat, onto the Earth's surface, and depending on where it lands, it will either be mostly absorbed or mostly reflected. Water, like the oceans, are really good at absorbing heat. They bring it in. Forests are really good at absorbing solar radiation. They literally are devouring the solar radiation. That's that's what they have evolved to do. <laughs> On the other hand, bare rock tends to be very reflective. It has a high albedo, reflecting light and heat back. And indeed, one of the landscapes with the highest albedo is ice and snow. Which is not surprising, giving its color... Yep, and uh, yeah, I mean, if you've ever been snow blinded, mm-hmm. yeah, that's because it's reflecting a ton of solar radiation back up. Yeah, both both by its structure and coloration, it just doesn't want to absorb a lot of energy. The ice albedo effect, which I've seen uh, referenced to a climatologist named Mikhail Budico, who studied this, popularized it, maybe was the first one to point it out. Oh, cool! Is the effect that since ice reflects solar radiation that means it's also reflecting heat which means the poles keep themselves cold that when heat comes in 
not only is it already cold, but all that ice bounces the heat back out. Yep. Maintaining that cold. After this was realized, some simulations went on to find that if there was enough ice on the surface of the Earth, uh, the one the, the number I saw referenced is that if the ice gets below or above, closer to the equator than 30 degrees north or south, the albedo effect starts to overwhelm other climate factors. That now the Earth is reflecting so much solar radiation that it's going to start depriving the entire planet of heat, which means it gets colder and more ice forms, which reflects more radiation, which means it gets colder and you have a runaway. Yeah. A runaway albedo effect or a runaway ice age. As it continues to cool itself down, it gets better at cooling itself down. This is a positive feedback loop. Mm -hmm. Now, it was in 1989 that the term Snowball Earth was coined by a paleomagnetist, Joe Kirschvink, at the California Institute of Technology. Uh, It then went on to become popular across the 90s uh, and really gained steam or missed. (laughs) An avalanche is... (laughs) That's it, a runaway effect. The Snowball Earth hypothesis combines the geologic evidence for widespread glaciation with the models, simulations of the climate that suggest how it might have happened. Basically, the Snowball Earth hypothesis says, hey, you know that climate model that says this thing is theoretically possible? Here's the evidence that suggests that it happened. Yes, that it theoretically did happen. A few times. (laughs) Now... Uh, Obviously, this is a big deal kind of claim, and over time, there have been alternative suggestions. There have been some hypotheses by scientists going, okay, not so fast, what about this? I can answer it without freezing the world. (laughs) Two uh, popular ideas that I've seen come up as I was reading about this that these days don't seem to be quite as popular but were proposed in the past. One is called the Zipper Rift Hypothesis. I like that name. Which basically suggests that a lot of the glacial evidence is misidentified. Oh, yeah. So during the cryogenian, the later two uh, snowball Earths, we were also seeing the breakup of the supercontinent of Rodinia, the supercontinent that came before Pangaea. The OG supercontinent. Uh, well, it's not, but <laughs> it, it is one uh, a, a more OG supercontinent. Yes, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Proponents of this idea point out that during rifting, you can get deposits in rift basins that are similar to glacial deposits and could be mistaken for them. So maybe glaciation wasn't as widespread as we thought, but over time, uh, more solid evidence of the timing and placement of the glacial evidence seems to have convinced many geologists that there was, in fact, very widespread glaciation. The other hypothesis that is famously an alternative to this, the one I like better, is called high obliquity, or the high tilt earth hypothesis. Oh. Right? So, as we've discussed before, the earth does not point straight up and down in relation to the sun. If you place the earth next to the sun, it is tilted. At like 23 degrees sounds right. or something like that off of vertical. This is why we have seasons, right? When it's winter in the Northern Hemisphere, it's because the Northern Hemisphere is tilted away from the sun. Well, 
The high-tilt-Earth hypothesis points out that if the tilt increases enough, uh, one reference I saw said greater than 54 degrees, then you would start getting more heat at the poles from the sun than at the equator. Yeah. And you could end up getting ice at the equatorial regions because the Earth is falling over. Yeah. <laughs> is on its side. This is a fascinating idea that does not, from what I've read, seem to have a lot of proponents these days. Yeah. Well, because, like, mathematically, it makes sense. Yes. Like, the physics is sound. Absolutely. If you tilt the Earth, your poles, even though you still have your poles that are the ends of the Earth where the rotation is going around, you know, where yeah. the stick would go through, but now your top and bottom, as far as the facing of the Earth to the sun, are... On that rotation. Right. Now we're like Uranus. Yes. Spinning, well, not quite on the side at 50 degrees, but closer to on our side than straight up. Exactly. <laughs> so now you would have the sun not getting to the equator as often. Yeah. So it makes perfect sense. Uh, but yeah, I, I can see how it would take some convincing to be like, well, maybe the Earth just fell over a few times. <laughs> <laughs> well, generally, the reasons I've seen most often for not accepting this are, one, we don't have a mechanism for getting the Earth to tilt that far. Like, yeah, we don't know a reason why that would have happened. Like, there's wobble to the tilt, but I've never right. heard it more than, like, a few degrees. Right. And there's still lots of evidence of warm climate conditions in the tropics in the Proto-Rozoic. So if it was majorly tilted for a long period of time you'd expect it to have been cold much more often than it seems to have been well it should have thrown off every norm right like exactly. we everything should be different the poles should be acting like temperate environments and everything should be weird and if we're not seeing that level of weirdness then right that we didn't turn into uranus <laughs> so though there has been lots of debate over the years there seems to be a general consensus of evidence and scientists that at at least these three times, there was, in fact, extreme glaciation. Glaciers and ice sheets reached way farther across the Earth than we have ever seen at any other time period, presumably because the Earth finally reached a tipping point where it couldn't stop freezing. Yeah. However, one of the biggest questions that remains still open is during this extreme glaciation, just how much ice was there? Yeah, <laughs> how snowy was the snowball? Generally, uh, during a time like this, we'd expect it to be cold and dry all over the planet. I've seen a number of different estimates of global average temperature during Snowball Earth. Usually this is talking about the later ones, the cryogenian, which has been studied far more often. One reference I saw cited a global average that might have gotten as low as negative 12 degrees Celsius. Whew. Other references cited even colder than that. I saw one that referenced uh, global average temperatures possibly at negative 50 degrees Celsius, where the equator would have average temperatures of around negative 20, similar to modern-day Antarctica. Ha! Huh. Now, I'm sure I didn't go diving deep into how we are estimating average mean temperature during these time periods. I'm sure there's lots of variation beyond even those two estimates. Yes. But suffice it to say, it was cold. It was a bit chilly. There are also varying interpretations about the level of ice cover during Snowball Earth. 
the extreme model is an Earth that is completely frozen. That the continents are covered in ice sheets like modern-day Antarctica that could have been kilometers thick. Right? Antarctica today is covered in ice that can be multiple kilometers, like two kilometers thick, which is also what is understood about the ice sheets that covered North America during the last glacial maximum, but also that the oceans would have been covered in sea ice as many as hundreds of meters thick. Which is the part that just, I genuinely struggle comprehending that much ice. You're not the only one. (laughs) This idea is sometimes referred to as the hard snowball. (laughs) Completely covered. In one reference, I saw it referred to as the ice ball. Yeah, this is this is when you try to save a snowball and you put it in the freezer <laughs> and then just end up pelting someone with an ice block. Now, there is lots of evidence that has been pointed out, especially in more recent years, that suggests it might not have been that extreme, that there wasn't a complete freeze. For one thing, there's geologic evidence that geologists have pointed out that suggests there was open water at the time. Yeah including glacial debris. So I mentioned glacial dropstones. So ice can carry rocks and stuff, and then if it melts or breaks, it'll drop stones. And you'll have these, like, completely out-of-place boulders. And I've seen pictures of some where, like, they're sitting in the ocean seafloor sediment, and the sediment around it is all contorted because <laughs> it crashed into the ocean floor. Because <laughs> glaciers are weird rivers of ice yeah. that then can just poop out rocks. So we've got evidence of glacial debris that seems to have been carried across water by ice. There's some evidence of possible wave ripples, which would suggest coastline. There's also, in some places, evidence of significant amounts of photosynthesizing organisms okay microbe organisms some of which are large enough communities that they would have presumably needed light and space which you wouldn't necessarily get if everything was frozen more on that later now some others uh, proponents of the ice ball have pointed out that this kind of evidence could show up during melting when things were melting back which of course they eventually did but The other thing is that a lot of climate models struggle with the hard snowball. A lot of climate models have trouble simulating the Earth in a realistic way while maintaining ice all over the place, especially on the ocean, because the ocean is really good at retaining heat, so it stays relatively warm, and it is always moving. Yeah. Even in the hard snowball idea, this ice would be atop the ocean. The oceans don't freeze. It's like a lake in the winter. Let's say even even Europa, the moon, has liquid underneath its ice. (laughs) And because of this motion of our oceans, a lot of climate models don't find good ways to have completely frozen over oceans. Some models suggest that you could have had a completely icy Earth, but the ice in the tropics would have been very thin maybe only a few meters thick, which not only would let light through, but also would probably crack and shift quite a lot, so you would end up with bits of open water. There are other models that support much more open water. I've seen some models that suggest that basically the tropics would still have open water oceans, even if there's icebergs and stuff across it. Mm -hmm. And others that are even more conservative, I saw one reference that suggested 
that more than half of the world's oceans would have still been ice-free. This idea that the sort of general idea of a mostly frozen Earth, where the oceans are incompletely frozen, is commonly referred to as slushball Earth. Yeah, that's the one I've heard. (laughs) And then, of course, uh, there is the other extreme end of the spectrum, which is some ideas, especially those earlier ideas, that suggest that the glaciation wasn't actually that bad, Mm -hmm. and that a lot of this is misplaced. So there have been hypotheses ranging from completely frozen over to actually just kind of like the last ice age. Yeah. Most of the references that I read, my the impression that I got is that there is a general consensus that there was in fact an extreme glaciation, an extreme glacial period with massive extents of glaciers and ice sheets, but likely not completely frozen. There seems to be a lot of objections to the completely frozen idea. I've seen a lot of headlines that suggest the snowball is giving way to a slush ball. A completely frozen Earth is a very extreme situation compared to most of Earth's history. So being very cautious with that idea makes sense just from a practicality sense. Sure. Even if the evidence was really leaning that way, I'd still be like, all right, but are we really sure? (laughs) Because that's a lot of ice. (laughs) Indeed, the proponents of the hard snowball, the completely frozen idea, I have seen cited as saying, well, yeah, extreme ideas always receive (laughs) (laughs) skepticism and testing and uncertainty. So some people are still quite confident in their fully frozen Earth. (laughs) Yeah. Like I said, a lot of the factors about snowball Earth are under intense discussion and intense scrutiny. How much snow and ice there was is one of those. Another is how did it start And how did it end? That's been the big question in my brain, especially how did it end? Which is one of the big reasons why if everything was frozen, why did it stop? Yep. So let's talk about that after the break. As I mentioned, these extreme glaciations, snowball earths, are thought to be the result of the runaway ice age, runaway albedo effect. More and more ice and snow reflects more and more heat, which makes it colder, which produces more ice, which reflects more heat. But there has been a lot of discussion about how did we even get to that point? How did it get cold enough to kick off that positive feedback loop? And there have been a handful of ideas proposed to explain this. One major proposed factor is that both the Huronian glaciation and the Cryogenian period, which includes the other two snowball earth glaciations, happen during times where supercontinents are breaking up. The supercontinent called Kennerland, back during the Huronian, and during the Sturtian and the Maranoan glaciations, northern Rodinia and southern Rodinia. And when continents separate, go back to episode 122, plate tectonics for more on that, you get rifting, which creates lots of coastlines, which brings moisture and land together, which means you get lots of weathering of silicate rock. We've talked about this before when we talk about the climate. The chemical weathering of silicate rock, where certain very common types of rock are weathered by rain and such, absorbs carbon dioxide. 
the chemical reaction that happens as this rock is exposed to the elements takes up CO2 as part of the step. Yep. CO2 comes down out of the atmosphere, often as part of rain, is absorbed uh, into these chemical reactions, and then is washed down with weathering products into the ocean, where it can form carbonate rocks and get locked in sediment. Which means that this process removes carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. If you have lots of new area for this type of weathering to occur, you will have lots more carbon dioxide being removed from the atmosphere. And carbon dioxide is a greenhouse gas. Yep. It traps heat in the atmosphere, which keeps the Earth warmer. Less carbon dioxide means less trapped heat. The same way that, relevant to today, more carbon dioxide means more trapped heat. So we just need to start breaking open some rocks. (laughs) Rifting also tends to be associated with lots of volcanic activity, which can produce carbon dioxide, but can also produce dust, which can temporarily build up in the atmosphere and block more sunlight, which can potentially contribute to cooling climates. On top of that, during the cryogenian period, the later period of massive glaciation, Most of the continents were in the tropics. Most of the continental landmass was closer to the equator, which means that it was generally warmer and wetter, which means even more susceptible to this weathering process. This is interesting because this ties into one of the suggestions about why a snowball Earth would have a harder time happening today. Because today, there isn't as much landmass near the equator. And in fact, a lot of land on our modern Earth is closer to the poles. Yeah, we got a lot of cold land today. North America and Eurasia are huge and very far north, which means that as our Earth starts freezing, like during our recent glacial periods, the ice covers those northern continents, cutting off a lot of that weathering, potentially before it can cool things enough to run into this problem. Another important factor, this time for the earlier proposed snowball earth event, the Huronian takes place very close in time to the Great Oxidation event. We talked about this in episode 75. This was a time where oxygen levels built up to what was, for the time, really incredible amounts in the atmosphere. At that time, in the earlier earth atmosphere, there was a lot of methane in the atmosphere, which is a particularly potent greenhouse gas. It suggested this is one of the things that helped keep the early Earth warm, but high oxygen levels remove methane. Oh. A methane-rich atmosphere will start to break down with rising levels of oxygen. And since methane is such a strong greenhouse gas, a relatively sudden drop in methane could also have been a major contributor to lowering global temperatures. So both time periods, we have a lot of weathering going on. In the cryogenian, a lot of that weathering is near the tropics, which means not only that it is common, but will persist even as the northern areas start to freeze. The Huronian seems to have also been losing greenhouse gases with oxygen kicking methane out of the atmosphere. And another thing that's really interesting to note about these times is the sun wasn't so hot back then. That's That's been what's going in my head this whole <laughs> time, is sun cycles and the state of the sun. Yeah, we know from studying stars that uh, the star like our sun has been getting brighter and hotter. 
it has become been becoming more luminous mm-hmm. over its lifespan. I saw a couple of references, don't quote me on these numbers, but I did pull these out of some of the references I read. During the Marinoan glaciation, the third and latest of the snowball Earths, the sun would have been about 6% dimmer than today. And during the Huronian, the much earlier one, it would have been about 16% dimmer than today. Yeah, so we're not talking like half brightness. No, know? but not that's like... like 16, that's like a sixth. Yes, that is not a small amount. And when you're dealing with levels of energy on a star, 6%, that's a lot of energy. Yes. Uh, 6% of the sun's energy is a ridiculous amount of energy. This is another reason why it has been suggested that it would be harder to start a snowball Earth event in modern times. Not only are our continents arranged differently, but the sun is hotter. Yeah. There's also the thought, and I, I don't know that there's any way for us to track, but the sun has cycles. It, it goes through dips and peaks in its energy output. You know, we will have times where the sun is just not quite as luminous, not quite as hot. Just for a time, because the chemical reactions happen to be going that way. Listen, sometimes the chemical reactions inside you just have you feeling low. Yeah, exactly. I know how you feel, yeah. son. And it's what I don't know that there's a that we have definite answers as to what causes the cycles in the sun. It just ebbs and flows. Like I, said, I don't know that there's any way for us to backtrack that. Yeah, I haven't. I didn't see discussion about that, but I'm sure it's been considered. So yeah, there's there's a lot of variables that could have synced up, which is like we've said with extinctions often what causes major events yes. in Earth's history. So it has been suggested for all three of these times that probably we were at a time in Earth's history where the Earth was predisposed to already be colder. But some scientists have proposed that there may have needed even still to be some sort of trigger, mm-hmm. a last straw. Now with the Huronian, this could very well be the rise of oxygen, There have been suggestions for the later ones, of course, because this is suggested for everything, asteroid impact (laughs) has been proposed. An asteroid impact, like we discussed for the end Cretaceous mass extinction, kicks up a lot of dust in the air and can block sunlight. But as far as I'm aware, there doesn't seem to be any evidence for significant asteroid impact at these times. Asteroid impact's one of those funny things where it gets suggested whenever there's a major event in Earth's history, basically. Yep. Uh, and it may seem, like, it, for those listening, that I could absolutely see how you could get the feeling of, like, oh, come on. Right. Like, again. God, God, we do this every time. <laughs> but if you're looking at a floating ball in space and something suddenly weird happens on it, either something had to change on the ball... Or something had to come and influence it. And in this case, it would be a totally reasonable idea. Like, that could, on an already cold Earth, block enough sunlight to push it over the edge. Yeah. We just don't have direct evidence for it as of now. Like the tilting of the Earth thing mathematically makes sense. Yes. The physics checks out. We just haven't found that space rock. But you know what we do have evidence for? Large igneous province... (laughs) Vulcanism. Uh, 
the ever-present friend it's of start- asteroid impacts. It's starting to feel like this comes up in global catastrophes so often. It's starting to feel like the League of Shadows. <laughs> like every time an empire falls or a, or a civilization crumbles, if you look close enough, you can see the League of Shadows was it's, there. It's Hydra. <laughs> this is the part of the, the the podcast where we mention global catastrophe and the large igneous province bursts in the door and says, did nobody say global catastrophe? Hey! And the studio audience cheers. Yeah. <laughs> Specifically... I saw one study in 2017 that was examining the Franklin Large Igneous Province in Arctic Canada. Today it's in the Arctic. Uh, Back then it was equatorial. Large Igneous Province volcanism, for those of you who haven't heard us talk about it in previous episodes of the podcast, is a phenomenon where you have, for one reason or another, lots and lots and lots of volcanic activity producing lots of volcanic products, lava and dust and such that forms massive regions of cooled igneous rock, a large igneous province. Yeah, it just, you know, when a volcano goes off and all that lava comes down and cools into rock, but if that just kept happening, yes, over and over for a long for time, thousands to millions of years, these have been implicated in basically every global catastrophe that there has been on the earth. Sometimes to greater or lesser acceptance in the scientific community. (laughs) The 2017 study found that the Franklin Large Igneous Province dates to around the start of the Sturtian glaciation, around 720 million years ago. This much volcanism would mean lots and lots of dust, which could help block sunlight, and also create lots of basaltic rock in the tropics, which is also a source of weathering to draw down more carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere. That makes that makes a lot of sense. So if this was happening during the cryogenian period, it was already cold, this volcanic activity could have been the trigger. This is I mean this was a 2017 study, so just a few years ago proposing this specific one. So I'm certainly not saying that this is definite. Yeah, this is not the smoking gun. Right. But A potential trigger for the event. Also, a thing that I learned while reading about this is that... So the problem with volcanic activity uh, in this regard is that it kicks dust up, and if the dust gets into the stratosphere, it lingers there. That layer of the atmosphere will hold on to dust for a while. Apparently, when the climate is colder, the stratosphere is lower. It settles lower in the atmosphere. So as the climate gets cooler it would also become easier for volcanic dust to reach the stratosphere and get stuck. Another potential positive feedback loop. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I don't know for sure if this is why, but the thought that came to my mind right away is like, if you have a balloon, if you cool that balloon, it will shrink, even if it's not notable. And if you heat it up, it will expand because hot air takes up more space. Well, and also cold air drops. Yeah. Hot air air rises. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the opposite is also true. I don't know. I don't. I didn't look into the yeah. dynamics. I'm sure an atmospheric scientist could explain it to us at length. Please do. <laughs> <laughs> we would. I would love to understand what's causing the stratosphere to rise and fall. So it seems like most major events in Earth history, probably a number of factors came together to create an Earth that was cold enough to gain enough ice to kick off a runaway ice age. The albedo effect. 
Which then raises the question of once the ice has run away, once the ice has taken over the planet, how do you fix it? Yeah. How do you undo this? This was actually a major problem for climate modelers early on when this idea was starting to be bandied around. Because if this had happened, they figured, we would still be there. Yeah. Because we don't know of a way for this to end. Well, especially since one of the driving ideas is this feedback loop runaway albedo effect. If we have gotten better and better progressively at keeping the Earth cold to the point that it has gone to the extreme, not only do you need to warm things up, but you need to combat this still occurring like yep. the albedo effect doesn't stop once the earth is cold and you go all right my work is done i slumber right no, <laughs> it is still reflecting light the whole time getting continuing to be at that optimum cold level how do you fight that yep. now this like i said was a problem that came up with early climate modelers because they did not know about a certain phenomenon on the planet Earth. Oh. Which we discussed in episode 122, plate tectonics. Hey. Plate tectonics is integral to the normal carbon cycle, the long-term carbon cycle on the Earth. Which, to put it very simply, goes like this. Weathering of rock, like we discussed, pulls carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and it runs down into the ocean and gets deposited carbon dioxide worked into carbonate rocks into ocean sediments that are then locked away in the ocean floor as we discussed in episode 122 the ocean floor is constantly on its way to being devoured by the earth yep eventually that sea floor that crust is brought to a subduction zone drawn down into the earth and as it does some of that rock material will heat and rise back up to the surface as magma to be erupted from a volcano as lava, which converts lots of the carbon dioxide back into atmospheric carbon dioxide and spews it up into the air. This is the long-term recycling of carbon throughout the Earth. On an Earth that was entirely frozen over, eventually you would have covered up most of your rock. You have cut the ice is cutting off the contact between the atmosphere and the rock. So weathering would have slowed down, but plate tectonics would be undeterred. Yeah, this this would not get in the way of the crust moving. <laughs> it's, it's one of those you can freeze the earth and the core and hot part in the center doesn't care. No. <laughs> that It is just going to keep trucking and all of that moving rock <laughs> is just going to keep moving. Which means that over time, carbon dioxide is now not, or at least much more slowly being removed from the atmosphere, but volcanic activity is still going to be happening, fed by plate tectonic activity. So carbon dioxide is going to slowly build up in the atmosphere more and more and more for, for these glaciations, millions of years until eventually you have enough of a greenhouse effect to start combating the cold climates on the planet. And once you start melting ice and replacing it with water, water absorbs heat. Water has low albedo, which means that you are now taking in heat 
which will help heat the earth up, which melts more ice, which creates more water, which absorbs more heat, and you get a reverse runaway. Yep. You get another positive feedback. It's feeding into itself in the reverse direction. Yeah. It is heating up more efficiently with every bit of ice that melts. This is the reverse runaway, or the way that I saw it referred to many times, and it's fantastic, a meltdown. <laughs> Snowball Earth melts away. Well, and this, this situation makes so much sense, because we talked about weathering you know, with the continents around the equator would be able to weather longer, which could cool things down by removing those greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. But then when you eventually cover them with ice, even if it's already too late... You know, you can't stop me now. Right. That weathering has significantly decreased. And as the ice starts to melt away, you are going to be exposing rock again. But at this point, there's a lot of carbon dioxide yeah. built up in the atmosphere. Because it's been building up without having anything to weather into yep. for a long, <laughs> long time. So now you are going to have to combat those levels. So it's it's like a rubber banding. Yes. That you can picture back and forth where you could go back and forth between these situations. This is actually one of the objections that has been made to the fully frozen Earth model. That according to at least some climate models, the amount of carbon dioxide you'd need to combat that would be astronomical. Yeah. That it would just, uh, by some models, be almost too difficult to come back from a fully frozen Earth. Yeah, that it may not be impossible, but it may be kind of un unrealistic. Some models, there have been models that have uh, tackled trying to simulate the meltdown. Some suggest the meltdown could happen in as few as a few thousand years. Wow. Which is very fast. That's like lost your uh, unplug the fridge that fast. You could practically watch the ice <laughs> <laughs> retreat. But... There have been some sediments that are thought to have formed during the meltdown that have multiple magnetic reversals in them, mm. which suggests that it actually took longer. Yeah. That probably that would be more like hundreds of thousands of years. So maybe very quickly, maybe not quite as quickly. It wouldn't only be carbon dioxide contributing to this. There have also been papers pointing out that the thawing of permafrost and seafloor sediments can also release a lot of methane. Yep. Those sediments can trap methane. And if you release methane, that's a great greenhouse gas for warming things up. That's an issue we see today. That's an issue we've discussed today that people are concerned about. One way or another, greenhouse gases are building up in the Earth's atmosphere until the ice ball or snowball or slush ball, whatever version of frozen Earth we have, can't hold on anymore. And it melts back. Which leads into the corollary to the Snowball Earth hypothesis that it is followed by what I have seen referred to as an ultra greenhouse. <laughs> A time where it got very warm. <laughs> very warm uh, relatively quickly, which might have lasted for thousands of years until weathering caught back up and the carbon cycle balanced again. Mm -hmm. Which means the aftermath of a snowball Earth is a very warm world. Uh, this world would see rapid sea level rise because a Earth's worth of ice is melting and contributing back to the oceans. But also thermal expansion means that warm water is actually less condensed than 
cold water. Yeah, it takes up more space because the molecules are spread out because they got more energy. Which means that even more of a sea level rise. Yep. So lots of flooding of continents, lots of reorganizing of coastlines. Because your oceans are swollen. Because, well, yeah, well, the oceans are coming back with a vengeance. <laughs> I saw a 2017 study that modeled what the ocean would look like during this meltdown and hypothesized that what you would end up with is a massive layer of warm, fresh water on top of the cold, salty oceans. Yeah. That there would have been a cover of fresh water on top of the oceans that wasn't mixing very quickly because it's warm and light versus cold and dense, like oil on water. Mm-hmm. That might have lasted for thousands of years before mixing finally put things back to normal. It's like we see this in sections on Earth today where like when rivers meet the ocean, you can get a river on top of the ocean for like kilometers that you could follow this path of fresh water across the surface as it skates over the salt water. Mm -hmm. Uh, The idea of that happening effectively globally is that that means like if you were diving... Yeah. You'd hit salinity. Oh, yeah. <laughs> there would be a barrier. Yeah. Now, uh, if you were diving, I, I don't have it written down in front of me. But if I remember correctly, this was a very, very thick layer. Yeah. So you probably couldn't actually dive. <laughs> if you were in a sub. <laughs> yes, exactly. You'd go down and then your sub would shake as you entered the second ocean. Yes. The ocean below the ocean. That's where the Megalodon lives. <sighs> yeah, no, exactly. This is the layer that keeps it from coming up. And that's why we don't know about it. There's also evidence of just weird ocean chemistry at this time. Uh, the glacial evidence is capped by carbonate rocks that are often called cap carbonates, limestones and dolostones uh, that are being deposited by all this carbon dioxide that is now available for more weathering and redeposition. Uh, they show at after the, the snowball earth periods, these carbonate rocks show unusual mineralogy, possibly because of strange things like abundant methane and other weird effects in the ocean. So, Suffice it to say that as bizarre and alien a world as a snowball earth glaciation would be, it would be comparably bizarre afterwards. The rebound. Yeah. Would be very strange. Star Wars planets. Yeah, you go straight from Hoth to Tatooine. (laughs) Real quick. (laughs) You got Hoth, you got Kamino. All of them are Earth at some point. (laughs) Now... There is one other major question that I have managed to avoid up until this point for this whole discussion. And that, the question that I'm sure many of our listeners are sitting there going, okay, okay, but, mm-hmm. but what about, and that question is, what in the world was life doing? What about the wampas? What, <laughs> <laughs> what was gonna trap Luke in its cave? Yes. There was life at these times. This was during the Proterozoic Eon which is defined in part by actually having complex microscopic life. Mm -hmm. Proterozoic life is mostly microbial, including both prokaryotes, which are your bacteria and such, quote, simple cells, and eukaryotes, the complex cells, which include animals, plants, fungi, and all of our microscopic cousins. Proterozoic eukaryotes and prokaryotes include... Some colonial forms, 
some multicellular forms. There were no animals or plants as we know them until the very end of the Proterozoic into the Phanerozoic, the Cambrian. But these earlier small life forms were very diverse and very widespread before and after each of these glacial events. Which raises the question, when the world becomes super cold, covered largely in ice, which blocks light from entering the oceans, and there's evidence that the oceans were robbed of oxygen, what happened to the life living on the planet? How did they make it through? Yes, that's been a big question, because obviously it made it. Yeah. And indeed... Because here we sit. Because here we sit, talking about it. Indeed, some scientists have pointed out that as an argument against Snowball Earth, to say, especially the fully frozen Earth idea, that if that happened, we wouldn't have life anymore, so that couldn't have happened. Others have suggested that in whatever version of Snowball Earth you might have seen, there would probably at least have been a mass extinction and then a recovery afterwards. Yeah, that, which makes... It doesn't seem like you can freeze the world and avoid a mass extinction. Right. Now, how one suspects life survived depends on how much ice one suspects there is a little bit. Proponents of the hard snowball, the ice ball, have suggested in the past that life may have been restricted to refugia. Rare areas where life could just eke out an existence. Hydrothermal vents deep below the ocean have been suggested. Occasional pores in the ice have been pointed out as places where you might be able to sustain microbial life. Models that suggest there was thin ice in the tropics. Uh, Some of those model ice that could have been thin enough, you know, only a couple of meters thick, to let light come through. So microbes could live underneath it, photosynthesizing. And if it's thin enough, it's probably going to have a lot of cracks. Yep. Which means light can come through, air can contact the water, uh, dust from the land and the volcanoes could carry nutrients into the water, like phosphorus and, and sulfur. And there's space. So life needs nutrients to feed upon, to, to build themselves. Light, because photosynthesis drives almost all of life on Earth, especially up at the surface. And space to move around and be alive and to exist today in our modern world these sort of channels of salt water running in cracks in the ice tend to be places where you get relatively rich uh, diversities of organisms yeah we talked about them when we discussed the arctic life yeah, episode 114 yeah you get algae and all sorts of microbes that live in these briny salt channels or in pools or in pores in the ice The slush ball model, of course, proposes that there was lots of open water, and thus not nearly as big a problem. And, again, icy areas today tend to be pretty productive. Yes. There are tons of microbial and, you know, in in today's world, animal life, that lives alongside or underneath sea ice. We've talked about that. I think there was a news article not too long ago about that that we discussed, that you can get rich diversity of life even in icy cold areas lots of microbes freeze and thaw yeah and even on a snowball earth there would have been warmer and colder 
time periods with the seasons, so you could still have had freezing and thawing in some places. Yeah, like the ice levels aren't, it's not static. The ice is still going to be thinning and thickening as you go through winter and summer, so you still could have chances for things to change for the beneficial, and you might just have to stick it out through the particularly, you know, difficult frozen time. Right. So there are many theoretical ways that life could have persisted uh, either in rare spaces or in maybe more common spaces during this time. The Huronian glaciation at the beginning of the Proterozoic, as I mentioned earlier, is associated with the Great Oxidation event, which we discussed in episode 75, as a possible mass extinction event. But the extinction in that case is thought to be related to the changing oxygen levels not necessarily to the glaciation. So you could have had a mass extinction associated with glaciation, both caused by the same thing. Yeah. By a wacky coincidence. (laughs) Now, these different ideas of what life was doing during Snowball Earth are difficult to analyze because we don't have a very good fossil record from these times. Not only, again, is it ancient, so not a lot of evidence survives, compared at least to more recent stuff, but also life at the time was tiny and squishy. Yeah. Like, microscopic and squishy. So we just don't get a lot of fossils from the late, and especially the early, Proterozoic. Yeah, no, and and so that makes it difficult to study, but it also, in my mind, makes it potentially make more sense that life would make it through. Because, like, if any form of life is good at surviving in crazy scenarios it's microbial life yeah like you throw them in i mean not you can't just throw any microbe into any situation but you'll find microbes in acidic you know geysers and around sea vents and underneath ice so like if any global life form could survive being frozen over for a long time microbes are the ones that i believe could do it And indeed, we do have some fossil evidence of what life was doing at the time. There are fossils specifically from the Cryogenian, the later of the the time periods towards the end of the Proterozoic. This encompasses the Sturtian and Maranoan snowball earth glaciations. There are not a lot of fossils, but enough fossils to give us an idea of what life looked like before, during, and after. Overall, there is no clear evidence of a drop in diversity or of a mass extinction. In fact, there is evidence that life might have done okay. For example, a 2015 study looked at fossil evidence from China during the Maranoan and found uh, uh, identified some fossil remains as benthic macroalgae. Hmm. So, seafloor dwelling, large algae which need ample light and space, suggesting that here was an ecosystem that was receiving plenty of light and had space to grow. A 2005 study similarly looked at evidence in Brazil during the Sturtian glaciation of biomarkers. So these are chemical evidences of the activity of life, not actual fossils, but trace fossils of life. Yeah, chemical footprints which indicated a complex ecosystem with evidence of both prokaryotes and eukaryotes, heterotrophs, meaning organisms that eat each other, and photosynthesizers. Huh. So a diverse ecosystem. 
A 2003 study of fossil remains in California found fossils, this was during the Sturtian glaciation again, of a thriving microbe community of prokaryotes and eukaryotes before and during the glaciation, with again, no major evidence of decline, and there have been other studies that have even found possible evidence of sponges or sponge-like organisms, which are fairly complex organisms for the time, before and during the Maranoan glaciation. Cool. Which all together, again, sparse fossil evidence, but not only is this not apparent evidence of a massive extinction event, but seems to suggest that at least in a number of places, life did fine during this time period. And I'd like to pull a quote from that California study. This is uh, Frank Corsetti et al. This quote was specifically discussing the implications of the California findings Mm -hmm. of thriving ecosystems before and during. But I think this quote beautifully sums up the whole question of life at this time. Quote, these results suggest that a completely ice-covered ocean was unlikely or that the resiliency of life has been underestimated. (laughs) Yes. And what I love about that is that I find both of those possibilities equally plausible. Yeah, absolutely. Both very possible. Well, because both of those are, like, as we've said multiple times in this, a fully, fully, fully iced over Earth is a lot. That's a that's a big pill to swallow. Yes. So a big cold pill to swallow. Yeah, not n- unpleasant. So there's lots of potential reason to doubt or at least question that harshly. Sure. But especially in more recent decades, over and over again we've found how wrong we are about what the limitations of life are. So if someone came out with evidence that was like we we have found evidence that the entire earth was completely frozen over in an unbreakable shell of ice, and also that life did just fine, I honestly wouldn't be that surprised. Yeah. Life is very resilient. And once again, microbial life. Yeah. This this is what they're good at. Now, again, we should stress, there is not a lot of fossil evidence. No. It is very possible we're missing the signs of the mass extinction that happened during this time. Surely... Some communities and some ecosystems suffered when the Earth froze over. Well, and it could be that the evidence we're finding is coming from those oasis-like sections, right? Where life was able to do just fine, you know. But if we were able to find evidence, we may not be finding evidence other places because life was not doing well there. <laughs> and indeed, some have wondered if a snowball Earth glaciation might actually, in the long run, boost diversity in life by acting as a filter. Yeah. That if life could only survive in a handful of places, you have isolated pockets of life evolving independently, selected for adaptation to harsh environments, which could, hypothetically, have created diverse, particularly hardy life to take over after the meltdown. Yeah, you get these insular pockets. And it has been suggested that these glaciations might be tied to certain important radiations in Earth history. Some scientists have pointed out 
the timing that eukaryotes seem to have risen to prominence around the time of the Huronian glaciation, and multicellular organisms seem to have risen to prominence during the Cryogenian. The next major thing that happens in the fossil record after the last of these glaciations is the Ediacaran biota, which are the first well-known fossils of large animal or animal-like organisms, which then lead into the Cambrian explosion. Yeah. So it has been suggested that maybe these glaciation events served as filters to then allow the diversification and spread of more complex life. Now, I I want to immediately add the caveat, we don't know that that's true. It's just, that's a thing that could potentially have happened due to these events. We Not only do we not have a lot of fossil evidence uh, from these times, generally speaking, but nailing down the timing of when these evolutionary events happened is very difficult, and nailing down the timing of the start and end of the glaciations has been uh, uh, challenging. So it would be incorrect to say the timing definitely lines up. Yes. But it is close enough that it's something a lot of people are interested in looking into. Yeah, no, it, it is worth increased scrutiny because there are some events that are rubbing shoulders that might have something to do with one another. So Snowball Earth from top to bottom is just a list of extremely interesting open questions. <laughs> there we have evidence that this fascinating extreme thing happened in to some degree somehow with some impact. Yes, yep. And it's an interesting topic to study not only because of course it's fascinating and because it could very well have been majorly influential every time it happened. But also because it's a really dramatic climate case study. You know, we've talked about how studying climate of the past helps us understand climate of the present and the future. Well, what better great laboratory experiment analog comparison could you ask for than the most extreme case scenario? Yeah. That's a very cool example to get to look at. And then, of course, to extrapolate even a little bit further to make my friend Will very happy. Studying what life does when the planet freezes over has lots of implications for our understanding of life elsewhere. Yeah. This is a topic of discussion with a lot of astrobiological implications. Yeah, if we have inklings of what life might have done under a frozen ocean, there are frozen oceans in our solar system. Yep. So, like, what could could that be happening there? It also brings to my mind, and we've already talked about part of the reasons why it's not likely to happen on Earth as it is now. Could this happen on Earth in the future? You know, mm-hmm. could the continents line back up? Could the sun go through a phase? Could could things set up again? Could all the another? pieces come together? Yeah. When all the dominoes are lined up, could we get a future snowball Earth? And then the main big question in my brain at that point is, now we've got plants and animals. Yep. And fungi, how would they handle? And now this is getting into a speculative Mm -hmm. discussion. I wonder to what degree plants and animals would impact the ability for this to happen. That's exactly what I thought as well. Because not only do animals 
produce carbon dioxide. Like we ourselves are combating this mm-hmm. at literally as we speak. I'm but doing it right now. But also, vegetated areas have low albedo. Yeah, they absorb uh, radiation very effectively. Yeah, plants are terraforming the planet at all times, <laughs> which means that even if you have a snowy tundra. Also, if you still have forests there, you're getting both Mm -hmm. the reflectivity of snow and the absorptiveness of trees. So, yeah, I we don't I didn't look into this. I saw this come up a few times of people going, this is unlikely to happen today because of X, Y, Z. It would be fascinating to have a discussion about could this even happen with a world covered in plants and animals? And if it did, what? Because I can only imagine that would definitely seem (laughs) to be a mass extinction event. That would give the Inpermian (laughs) a run for its money. (laughs) That, it it would just have to be massive. Oh. Well, now we're speculating. Which is what we like to do. (laughs) (laughs) But. Let's leave it at that. Snowball Earth, fascinating topic. Way more to go into. Uh, As always, there will be a blog post after this episode. For those of you who want to do a deeper dive. But before we go, we have a patron question. One of the things that patrons get to do is ask us questions to answer on the podcast. And I selected a patron question for this episode that I think is relatively fitting for our discussion of major changes in the Grand Earth system. Will, if you would please, read the patron question. Happily. Our question this episode is from Brian, who asks... What causes the Earth's magnetic poles to wobble or change positions? This is a good question. In fact, this is one of those, every now and then, I'll be receiving scientific questions in some regard, and I'll get a question that makes me go, oh, we're asking the hard ones, aren't we? All right. (laughs) Jeez, you're not taking it easy. Yeah, this is, the magnetic field of the Earth is a very complex topic. So, in brief, the Earth has a magnetic field. Like a magnet, the Earth is surrounded by a field of magnetism such that magnetically responsive materials on the Earth react to this magnetic field. This is why compasses work and things like that. Yes. Why we have a magnetic field is a question that has been the subject of lots of discussion. Generally speaking, we have a magnetic field because the interior of the Earth is in motion. Yes. The Earth has a core, an inner core, and an outer core. The outer core is liquid and full of metal. Iron and nickel constantly in motion. Heat from the inner core causes convection in this liquid outer core. The rotation of the Earth causes the fluid to rotate. Altogether, lots of motion of electrically conductive fluids and electrical currents create magnetic fields. Yeah, when you want to create an electromagnet, all you have to do is take a piece of metal, wrap wire around it in a, like, spiral, and then run electricity through that wire. That spiral motion of electricity turns that metal rod into a magnet. And the spiraling motion of fluid in the core, based on models of Earth interior dynamics, is what creates our magnetic field. The Earth is a giant electromagnet. Which is just, that sentence makes every part (laughs) of me happy. (laughs) This is called, this whole process and phenomenon is called the geodynamo. Yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> motion of liquid metal in the outer core generates our uh, magnetic field. Dibs on that as my superhero name if my powers have to <laughs> Geo be Dynamo. Earth-based. Ooh, that would be a good one. That's your right. earth-bending... Uh, what's the sport? Oh, yeah. Uh, pro-bending. That's your pro-bending... That's what's going to be on the back name. of my jersey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Geo Dynamo. That's oh, what they'll call you. I'm, t- I'm telling my friend Anna that. She'll love it. <laughs> now, the movement of the fluid inside of the Earth's core is complex. A bit. <laughs> Currents shift... Uh, movements at the core mantle boundary will move horizontally and create their own magnetic signals. There's lots of fluctuation, which means lots of variation in the magnetic signal of the geodynamo. There are complex geophysical models to simulate and study this system. I- I'll clarify again. We don't, we've never seen this. Yeah. We can't go down there. Yeah, we've never actually gone through the upper crust. Right. <laughs> so we, we've never actually even visually seen what is just beneath what we're walking on. But we have seismic m- methods for studying the structure of the interior of the Earth. And based on our understanding of all of everything, this model of the geodynamo matches what we understand of the Earth and what we see in the magnetic field. We are able to model this in, in a lot of detail, and probably with pretty high accuracy. So the currents are constantly fluctuating. Uh, also, I believe atmospheric currents can impact the magnetic field. Solar winds can impact the magnetic field. All of this adds up to generate the shifting in the magnetic field that we see. So this is Brian's question. What causes the magnetic fields to wobble? Yeah, magnetic north does not sit still. Where technically the north and south ends of the Earth's bar magnet are shift over time. Quickly, they can shift meters per day and miles per year. And it's one of those where it makes sense because once again, even though when we picture the Earth and its poles, we tend to put an imaginary line through it. Mm -hmm. The Earth is not a bar magnet. It does not have two distinct ends. It's a spheroid so if things slosh differently inside it, <laughs> yep. where those magnetic fields meet up to create magnetic north and south are going to wobble around. Now, it seems like the magnetic field is generally kept mostly running north-south relative to the Earth's actual poles by the rotation of the Earth. Yeah. Right? That's keeping the currents moving in a certain direction so that... Most of the time, even though the magnetic north-south line shifts and moves, I'm moving my arm. The audience can't see this, but it helps me. I it's guess. a it's a really good. Visual I'm doing aid. it. Great. You guys should have been here. Uh, it makes it make a lot more sense. <laughs> Will knows exactly <laughs> what I'm talking about. I get it. It tends to roughly match up with the rotational axis of the Earth, the physical north pole, and the magnetic north pole tend to be generally in the same direction, which is why your compass is pretty reliable at pointing you northwards, even if when you actually got up there, you'd find that it was a little bit off. Yeah, but that's one of those where, like, the only way we can determine that it's a little bit off is with much more complicated systems than a compass. Because if you went up to follow it somehow, 
<laughs> just you know? trekked all the way to <laughs> take a walk the north. You wouldn't be able to tell whether you're in the correct middle because you're just in right. a frozen wasteland. You know when you could have done that? <laughs> Snowball Earth. Yes. Now, uh, Brian's question had another part. What causes the Earth's magnetic poles to wobble or change positions? Yeah, because that's the other thing they do. <laughs> so this is something very famously known. We've talked about this on the podcast. We talked about it a bunch in episode 122, plate tectonics. Every now and then throughout Earth's history, the magnetic field flips over. Yes. Magnetic north becomes magnetic south and vice versa. I always have to stress this. The physical Earth does not move. No. Like the Earth doesn't flip upside down, but your compass would suddenly point the other way. Yes. The poles, the positive and negative end of the magnet, reverse. Yeah. For a day-to-day basis, if we time traveled you back to a point where things were reversed you wouldn't be able to tell us that was the case if we didn't give you a compass yeah (laughs) you wouldn't be able to tell even if we did (laughs) your compass would still tell you where north and south were you just have to read it backwards yeah you just need to look at the not red end (laughs) we see evidence of these magnetic reversals in the magnetic minerals preserved in the rocks throughout earth's history the magnetic poles flip back and forth usually tens to hundreds of thousands of years apart from each other seemingly at random. As for why this happens, the general explanation is that with all of the fluctuation in the magnetic field, what's generally thought to be happening is that the different motions of this liquid material are creating magnetic signatures that are competing with each other. Mm -hmm. And that's what causes, if the, the magnetic field is weaker in this direction and stronger in that direction, the whole, the poles might drift in one direction or the other. It is thought that if this system becomes chaotic enough to overwhelm that north-south line, you could end up with extreme wander of the poles and even multiple norths and souths. Yeah. That the Earth would cease to be a dipole and become magnetically complex. That the magnetic field would break down. And become sort of chaotic. But the way that the Earth's core operates in this geodynamo seems to prefer a dipole. It prefers to be, right? It is uh, like water flowing downhill. The easiest thing for it to be is a north and south poled dipole magnetic field. So even when it does get chaotic, it then snaps back to a dipole, sometimes upside down. Yeah, and it it could be that it could hit a chaotic moment, but reset back to normal, you know, quote-unquote normal as compared to today, Mm -hmm. north-south, but sometimes it will flip back to the reverse. I've seen multiple descriptions of the geodynamo model as our simulations show the magnetic anomalies or that that occur just throughout the core preferentially want so it it is their sort of natural effect default to create disorder but the strongest influence of the motion maintains a north south dipole and so the way i've seen it described is that there are probably several quote failed attempts <laughs> to flip the poles in between each actual flip yeah. of the magnetic poles. Which make makes complete sense. 
If all of this sounds extremely complicated and confusing to you, you are not wrong. It is. I I saw this question and I was like, I'm very excited to answer this question. I'm a little nervous to research it because I know it's, it's, I, I did a lot of reading to get my basic <laughs> understanding of how this is thought to work. So if you want to learn more about that, there's a lot of great cool physics and geophysics descriptions of it online. And if you want to hear us talk more about this kind of stuff, let us know. Well, it, it this gets to one of those levels of systems, systematics, uh, you know, like I've often heard weather described as, to where mm -hmm. this is a system where it's not that we don't understand the moving parts, but those moving parts are so numerous and so large that the complexity is inherently unpredictable. Yeah. Like, we can get an idea, but we can't actually nail it down to precise numbers because there's just too much variability. It's too big. It's on a scale outside of what we're used to dealing, what our brains are used to dealing with. The inside of our planet is that, but also we haven't actually directly observed it. Right. <laughs> so it's it's double layered. That's all. There's a lot going on in there. Most and sometimes it's crazy, <laughs> and we mostly have an idea of what's probably happening. Our most effective way to understand what's happening with the magnetic field is to watch it. Yep. We, we measure it and go, oh, I guess this means this is what's happening right now inside the earth. <laughs> yep. Thank you for that question, Brian. A fascinating question. Hey, thanks to everyone who requested this topic for this episode. Yeah, this was a lot of fun. It was a fun one. As always, our list of episode topic requests is enormous. But please don't let that discourage you from suggesting more topics. Yeah, variety is always nice. If there's something you want to hear us talk about, always feel free, please, to let us know via email or social media or however you can. I've quite enjoyed this discussion of Snowball Earth, and I hope that our audience has too. As I mentioned, there will be a blog post after this episode with links and images to help you learn more. Go on deeper dives if you want. Thanks for tuning in. Hey, don't forget... It's still October, which means Spooky is still coming out. So check those episodes out for our Spookulative Evolution if you haven't already. It's us joined by our pal, Dr. Ali Baumgartner. And speaking of Dr. Ali Baumgartner, the next main episode of the podcast is episode 125. And you know what that means. It ends in a five. Plants. <laughs> so Ali will also be back. For the episode that releases on Halloween. <laughs> to cap off our very plant-filled October. Our alley month. Our, yeah, the alley month. Oh, man. We'll have to convert August <laughs> or something in the future into alley month. In any case, thank you, everybody, for listening. Listen to Spooky. Tell us your suggestions for more stuff. Buy merch on our Zazzle store, support us on Patreon, tell your friends about us, leave us a review, follow us on social media, whatever way works best for you to support what we do, we greatly appreciate it. We got a mailbox now. Oh, that's right. We have a physical mailbox. Find the address on our blog and send us stuff if you want. We release episodes every fortnight. So tune in. I was going to make a, a comment about us being more regular than snowball earths or magnetic pole reversals yeah and then i thought that'd be lame so i'm not gonna say it yeah, yeah. no good idea yeah <laughs> tune in next time 
Oh, I didn't make any Arnold references. I kept thinking of moments. A chill is coming. Of like that. This is when Arnold's plan. This is when his he successfully froze Gotham in the world. Everybody freeze! <laughs> what killed the dinosaurs? The Ice Age. <laughs> <laughs> okay, now goodbye, everybody. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Common Descent Podcast. You can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, and check our WordPress blog for pictures and links after each episode. Huge thanks to our patrons whose support helps keep this podcast running and who get access to bonus goodies on Patreon. The song you're hearing is called On the Origin of Species by Protodome, which we found at ocremix.org. Thanks again for listening. We hope you'll join us next time.